Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Uh, it is a privilege for me to be here. It's good to be here, Harvest. Um, I'm going to move this over here. So Dave and I used to do youth ministry together some 15 years ago. And I thought we made a pretty good couple, if I do say so myself. Dave was hip, in with youth culture. He knew all the music and the shows and all the cars that the kids liked. And, uh, and I preached the word. And... Uh, <laughs> And I remember once we were driving home and I said, Dave, man, you're so good with the kids. I mean, you connect with them. They laugh with you. You know, they have a great time with you. Man, I wish I could connect with them the way you connect with them. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then Dave kind of looked down and he goes, yeah, darn, I just wish they'd respect me a little bit. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it was, it was a fun team. Um, I would like... I'd go away on a, take the kids on a summer mission trip and they'd like go to the six, go to six flags and do like picnics and all kinds of, and then I'd come back and then, all right, you know, Dave would pass it off to me and say, all right, Paul, why don't you, um, lead the prayer meetings and get them ready for the retreat. <laughs> and so, like, he led the game time, I led the prayer time and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Even though this, at this retreat, Dave, you get the prayer time and, uh, I'll enjoy your ministry. Uh, well, I would like to spend this weekend meditating on the gospel. Um, we're going to be looking at Galatians, and so if you'd like, you can open your Bibles there to Galatians 3, where we want to see how Paul very passionately argues that we gain God's favor through faith, not through the law. That we're saved by grace, not saved by effort. Now, a few years ago, if, uh, if I had heard a preacher say that, I would have not, you know, I mean, externally I would have smiled and nodded, but internally I would have yawned and said, this is going to be boring. I know this. I've heard it so many times. I grew up with this. Yes, for it is by grace we've been saved, you know, by, um, not by ourselves, not by our works, but through grace, through, through faith. The gift of God, and I, I know all that. I already understand all that. So, preacher, why don't you tell me something new? But I find here in Galatians that Paul is preaching the gospel to Christians. The book of Galatians is addressed to the churches in Galatia. Paul considers them Christians. And he is passionately preaching the gospel not for their conversion but for their living. He's saying you need to not just be saved by the gospel, you need to live in the gospel. This isn't just how you begin the Christian life. This is how you live the Christian life. And what I find in the book of Galatians and what I find in my life and in my church is that it's easy to get it wrong. It's easy to start with the gospel and then 
lose your course so that Galatians speaks not to the, the, the churches in Galatia, but it speaks to us to say how we started is also how we must live. And so it is my goal, it is my prayer, my vision that this weekend I might lead us, somehow shine some light on what it means to not just start in the gospel, but to live in the gospel. How to live a life of faith. How to live in the spirit. And I, I was just expressing this to uh, your pastor, Dave, uh, while we were talking earlier today. It is my humble opinion that most of us probably don't have this right. It is my humble opinion, even for myself, it's only in recent years that I feel like I've understood what living in the gospel means. And I would say it's not just for Harvest. I'd say my own church. I tell my elders, I said, I'm scared. I fear. Uh, even though I've been preaching Galatians since uh, October and we're just finishing up now. I mean, how many months is that? I said, I fear we still don't get it. I fear we don't understand what living in the gospel means. But it has been an enormous turning point for me in my own personal relationship with God. And it has become my clear and defining vision for what I want to see in my own church. And so I'd like to share that with you this weekend of what living in the gospel, living by faith, what this Christian life is supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like. Now, as I just mentioned, I've been preaching Galatians since October. We're just finishing up right now. So I've got like 20-some sermons that I would love to give to you in two days. But God's mercy to you is that I don't do that. <laughs> so, um, but I'm going to try to cram as much material into the time that I have with you as I can. So it's going to be, I heard one person use the phrase, like drinking from a fire hydrant. You know, it's just going to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it may not feel so good all the time, but I hope. I hope it will be profitable. And I, I want to, I also want to say, a lot of what I say is probably in some ways going to sound cliche. It's grace, not effort. It's, it's the gospel, not law. Like, yeah, we know that. And yet I want to say that probably intuitively we don't know what that means. Most of us probably grew up, if I can just say, as a Korean American, grew up in a church context where we did not grow up in the gospel we grew up in the law we grew up in legalism we grew up in morality or we grew up in licentiousness maybe you didn't grow up in a christian family but my guess is very few of us grew up in the gospel and so even though it's we're familiar with the words our default mode in our living will will go back to legalistic or licentious tendencies and so I, I urge us to listen carefully for I, as Paul very passionately pleads, this is critical. As we uh, examine the gospel, I hope as it, I hope it fits your direction as a church in that it teaches us how to reach up in worship. The gospel will very directly show us how to reach up in worship, but I also hope that it'll show us how the gospel teaches us to reach across in community, how it changes the way we, we relate to one another in the body of Christ, how it, how it redefines and transforms and frees us to have relationships we otherwise would not be able to have apart from the gospel. 
And thirdly, I hope that the gospel, understanding the gospel shows us how we can reach out. For as we reach out, how do we reach out? We must reach out as servants of the gospel. If you have no gospel, what are you reaching out with? Whoa, excuse me. Um, you have, you can't give what you don't have. If there isn't something that isn't within us, what do we plan to give to the world in our reaching out? And so I hope by spending so much time on the gospel, we'll see that it intrinsically fuels our reaching up, reaching across and reaching out. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to give you a few um, statements here just as we begin, kind of telling you just up front some of my main thoughts. The Bible is a story about who God is and what he has done for us. Some call it the redemptive story. It's the story of how God rescued sinners. That's what the Bible is about. Number two, it's not a book of application. It's not a book about how we're supposed to live. No, this is a story about what God has done for us. Or as we'll, met, as we'll zoom in on a little more in a, uh, later in this message, it is a book of promises. What he has done, what he is doing, and what he promises to do for us in the future. Christian living is not about living to get, but living because it's already given. And this we'll probably get to a little later on in our weekend. But I just want to, again, present some of these things in seed form right now. Christian living is not about trying to get, living to get, but living out of the freedom of having already received. And finally, Christian living is not about living by effort, but Living by faith. And I hope before the end of this weekend and even before the end of this message, a lot of these statements will have greater depth and richness. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'd like to read verses 1 through 9. Well, let's start with 1 through 5. Just so you know, what I'm planning to do is, um, this is actually two sermons smushed, smushed together, swooshed together. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. As we see that the gospel is not just how we begin, but how we live. And then we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. And I want us to see the connection we have with the faith of Abraham. And then we're going to run with uh, understanding the faith of Abraham. But first we'll start with verses 1 through 5. The gospel is how we begin and how we live the Christian life. So Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. You foolish Galatians! I'm going to try to, like, make it come alive, all right? I think Paul's, like, agitated here. You idiots! (laughs) Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? 
or because you believe what you heard. And so here, the, the context of Galatians, and we'll try to do this real quickly. You have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the church of Galatia. And these Jewish Christians were influenced by other people called Judaizers, basically telling them that you can't associate with these Gentile Christians because Jews and Gentiles were supposed to be separate. And they pressured them. You can't eat and have fellowship with uncircumcised Gentiles. And the pressure was these Gentiles needed to become circumcised, follow the Mosaic law, not eat certain unclean foods. They had to observe religious holidays. They had to become a Jew. In other, in, in order to become a follower of Christ. And Paul emphatically says, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. We don't start by, we're saved by grace through faith, and now we need to be circumcised and follow all these dietary restrictions and observe all these holidays. Or we wouldn't use those words. We'd say, we're saved by grace, but now we have to go to church and do our quiet time and give our money and help out, serve you know, uh, on mission trips and help the poor and reach across and reach out and reach, reach, reach. And that's what you need to do. And and Paul says, I mean, it's good to do all those things. It's great to do those things. But that's not that's not the story of our life. I think most of us would recognize if you were to talk with a non-Christian that um, wow, there are a lot of mics up here. They're all taller than me, too. I'll stop over here. Yeah. If you were to talk with non-Christian and they said, you know, but I don't really know if I can go to church. You know, I don't really read my Bible. I don't really like do lots of good things. And so maybe I should read my Bible and try to say my prayers. And then when I'm good enough, then maybe I can go to church and God will accept me. And I'm sure all of you would be so quick to say, look, your Bible reading, your church attendance, you're helping the poor. That doesn't matter. That doesn't score points with God. All right. If you have a non-Christian that reads their Bible and a non-Christian that doesn't read their Bible, it's not like one's better than the other. They're both hell-deserving. I mean, they're both lost. It doesn't matter. But interestingly, after we become a Christian, we think it matters. Because you look at the Christian that reads the Bible and you look at the Christian that doesn't read their Bible. And what do you think? You think, oh, the Christian that reads their Bible goes to prayer meetings, goes on mission trips, gives lots of offering. They're good. But these people who like, oh, they don't, you know, they barely even come to church. I mean, they're not even here at this retreat. And you judge them and you go, those lazy, you know, half-hearted Christians, at least we're here. And you, you think you're better. And we think somehow now our good works do gain us something. And Paul says, That's not the gospel. We don't ever merit God's favor. We start by grace and we live by grace. Or let me put it this way. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace. Oh, here we go. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Amen. But then, if we were to write the story, we might write it like, but it is by effort that you grow. And this, from yourselves, you must fully apply yourself. The difference between the mature and the immature is the difference between the law keeping and the law failing. The diligent and the lazy. The faithful and the unfaithful. You were saved by grace, but now it's up to you to grow in character and in your relationship with God. So get going, bud. Amen. Paul says, 
What has gotten into you? Who has bewitched you? You foolish idiots! Does that sound like the Bible? What Bible are you reading that you would think such heresy as this? Paul's saying, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Notice the language of verse 1. It's not that subtle here, right? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? One, one paraphrase, the message, um, Eugene Peterson writes that you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? The force. Now you will live by effort. You know, I mean, what, what, what's gotten into your mind? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened. What? What? It's gotten into you, you numbskulls, you know, you, you just, I mean, it's the Bible, so he doesn't actually curse at them, but I mean, I wonder what he was thinking, you know, I mean, it's just, and he implies, verse four, that it can all be for nothing. Verse four, have you suffered so much for nothing? And we don't have the time to look at Galatians as a whole, but Paul implies in not so subtle terms, you get this wrong. You get this gospel living peace wrong, and we really should question your salvation. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, you have turned away from God. You've turned away from God. Now, okay, God, you see, it's so much to say it's not like they're going partying and like sleeping around and getting drunk. And you know what they're doing is they're following the Mosaic law. They're getting circumcised. It's like, it's like, it's like you come to harvest and now you're going to join membership class and you're going to go in small group and you're going to like be baptized and you're going to like give your offering. And Paul says, you have turned away from God. Whoa, whoa, wait, what's the deal here? Why is he so upset? You know, I mean, these guys are not like robbing banks and doing drugs. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing all the right things. And yet Paul says, you have turned away from God. He says, chapter 1, verse 9, If anyone preaches to you any other gospel, let him be condemned. Literally, let him go to hell. I mean, Paul's practically cursing in this letter. Let him, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. You get this gospel living piece wrong. You get the gospel living piece wrong. Paul says, I really think you should question your salvation. We'll question whether you got the gospel at all. It's a big deal. It is not a footnote. For Paul, his whole letter is devoted to addressing this heresy. It's a big deal. And then he says... Why is this so absurd? Why is this so offensive for us to start by grace but live by effort? He says, you've looked, seen two things. Number one, you've looked at Christ crucified. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Seeing a crucified Christ demonstrates to us the foolishness of starting by grace, but now living by effort. Paul says, if we can be justified by ourselves, Christ died in vain. 
But we know that he did not die in vain because we cannot justify ourselves. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Suppose one day you wake up in a hospital bed. You don't remember anything. You just wake up one morning and you got tubes and boop, 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 boop. You know, these little machines like chirping away. And the nurse comes in and you, you turn to the nurse and you say, um, Miss, I'm sorry, but why am I here? What am I? What, what happened? And she turns to you, oh, sweetie, it's no big deal. You were just a little dehydrated. I think you, I think you like collapsed or something. They brought you and we got you all hydrated. You're, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You just rest there now and let those IVs just hydrate you all back up together. Scenario B, the nurse comes in and says, well, um, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Um, your sister had to give you her left lung for you to survive, but uh, you're going to make it. She, um, I mean, she knew it was going to be risky to give you her lung. And uh, she didn't make it, but uh, I think I think you're going to pull through. What does the cross say? The cross says you didn't need a little hydration to get better. You need someone to die on the cross to save you. That's what the cross says. It's not a trivial thing. It's not a small thing. The cross says, I was in serious trouble and I was helpless to save myself. I was, I was in big trouble. He didn't just throw me a lifeline. He didn't just give me some fluids. He didn't just write me a, a little prescription. He died to save me. Now, I have to confess, I didn't always think like this. All right. I mean, you have to understand, I um, come from a Christian family. My dad's a pastor. I grew up in the church uh, from an early age. I was reading my Bible and helping my youth group and serving in college. And right after college, went to seminary, you know, full time ministry. Uh, I, I mean, I'm far from perfect, but I try to be a good father. I try to be a good husband. I don't cheat on my taxes, at least not intentionally. You know, I, I, I try to do the right thing. You know, I'm, I'm far from perfect, but on the whole, I consider myself a fairly decent person on the whole. But the gospel says, Paul, you think you're pretty good. You are just as hell-deserving as anyone on death row, as any drug addict, as any, as any prostitute, as any corporate executive who's, you know, uh, white-collar crime stealing millions from their stockholders. You're just as guilty as a child molester. You're just as guilty as anybody else. That's what the gospel says. You were in deep trouble, just as deep as any other sinner. All your good works, going to church and reading your Bible and going on missions and becoming a pastor, all your good works, all of that, the gospel says, it's worthless. It's monopoly money. If, if, uh, if you came to this retreat and uh, who's the guy who does registration? I forget his name. Scott? Scott? And you pulled out monopoly money. And, hey. Here's a $10,000. Keep the change. 
What, 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 what? He's just going to laugh at you. Keep, keep your monopoly money. It doesn't, that, that doesn't help you. That's what we have. You have monopoly money. You think you're so rich. And God says, that's worthless. We hold on to our good works like it's something. And the gospel says, it's absolutely worthless. Paul says, all that I held as a Jew, I was a Hebrew, he was circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And now he's saying, you know what? I might as well have been a Gentile. I might as well have been an idolatrous pagan. I might as well have just been a heathen. I might as well have not been a Jew at all because it's absolutely worthless. This is what Paul says. The cross says, I cannot produce true good works. In myself, I am completely powerless to do anything righteous or pleasing to God then or now. Meaning, before you became a Christian and even now after you call yourself a Christian. Left to ourselves, we are just as helpless in our ability to do good work. I'd like you to imagine you're uh, going for a run and there's this river in Philadelphia. There's a Schuylkill River and uh, you're going, you know, on this trail by the river. And, and as you're running, you see this guy that's swimming in the river. I mean, no one in his right mind would swim in a Schuylkill. So, you know, you think he's probably kind of crazy to begin with. But you look a little more closely and you realize he's drowning. And in that, in that moment of truth, your, your kind, compassionate instincts jump in and you, without hesitation, you just take off your shoes and you jump into the river and you swim out there. And you, you know, you bring him to shore. And you, there you are, you're like heaving and coughing and, you know, you spend a few minutes just trying to catch your breath. And then he turns to you and he says, Mr. Miss, you, you, you saved my life. And he goes, it's all right, you know. Don't do it again, you idiot. You know, uh, 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 uh. And as you're catching your breath, a few minutes later, the guy gets up and he walks back to the river. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, well, what are you doing? And the guy says, well, well, you know, I, I think if I just try a little harder, I, I, I can make it. And you go, Look. You don't know how to swim. You didn't know how to swim five minutes ago. You don't know how to swim now. Do you understand? You cannot swim. Get your feet back on the ground here. What are you doing? You idiot who has bewitched you. What has gotten into your senses, you foolish Galatians? You couldn't swim then. You can't swim now. You couldn't do righteous works then. And even after God saved you, you still cannot do righteous works. What has gotten into you? And you think just because you're saved, you can now do righteous works? No, you're still the helpless sinner you was when he saved you. The cross stands above us to condemn us and expose us. That we are hopeless, 
helpless sinners. That apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. Now, to be clear, in Christ, we can do amazing things. In Christ, there is true righteousness. And we want to get to that in the second half of this retreat. But in ourselves, in ourselves, we cannot do any righteous deeds today any more than we could have before Christ saved us. We couldn't swim then. We can't swim now. That's what the cross says. He says, look at Christ crucified. Number two, he says, look at how you received the Holy Spirit. Verse two and verse five. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Verse five. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? I I think we want to pause for a moment and recognize that receiving the Holy Spirit has got to be kind of like the top, in the top five of God's gifts, right? I mean, health, marriage, kids, career, um, material provisions, those are all great. But to have like the third person of the Trinity dwell in your body, like that's, that's got to be up there, right? It's got to be up there. And how did you receive this great and amazing gift of the Holy Spirit? How was that? Paul says, did you receive it? Because you prayed so hard. And you always read your Bible and you like gave your offering and you helped the poor and you did all these good works and you were such a good person that God said, you know what? That's a good child. Zap them. There you go. Holy Spirit, come on. That, that's not how it happened. But it wasn't on the righteous or the, 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 the diligent or the, the person who kept the law. It was not by the law, it was by faith, it says. That's how we receive the Holy Spirit. It was a gift received by faith. Now, I want to say the same thing four in four different ways. Number one, we can't do anything to merit God's favor, ever. It's always a gift. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by merit? No, it was by grace through faith. Always, just a side thing again, the Christian life is always about receiving. We never give to God, which is B. We don't receive the gift of salvation and then repay him with our good works. We never give anything to God. We always receive. Always. We never give anything to God. Our good works that we think we give to God is, in fact, God's gift to us. Ephesians 2.10, I'd argue. We never do anything for him. We always and only receive his gifts. We do not come in as a prodigal son and then live as wage-earning employees. All right? You remember the parable of the prodigal son. You don't come bankrupt and destitute and you have nothing and then he receives you and now all of a sudden hey you know i've got these professional degrees and uh, you know i've got these income earning uh, abilities and da, 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 i'm worth this much and my hourly rate is that much and no you are bankrupt before you're bankrupt now we never live with wage earning capacities we are always 
bankrupt and undeserving. Or finally, another way to put it is the gospel is not just a story about the gift of salvation for our lives. The gospel is a more comprehensive story of how he predestined us, how he called us, how he justified us, how he sanctifies us, sustains us, glorifies us in heaven above and takes us home. It's the whole story. The gospel is the whole story. The gospel is not, and he saved us, and now this is what I do. No, the gospel is how he chose us, how he saved us, called us, redeemed us, justified us, sanctified us, and glorified us. Because in heaven, you see, the only story there is, is the story of how God saved us. That's the only story there is. That's the gospel story. There is no story of what we do. Stories about what he's done for us. That's the story. And so if Paul finds it utterly unthinkable that we could start by grace and now live by effort. That's just a betrayal. It just shows we don't even understand the gospel yet. Let me just punctuate a few points. Not about what we do, but about what God does. And as simple as that statement will be, that is a major rewiring of our internal worlds. Hopefully we'll begin to unpack that through the weekend. And when we understand and trust in what God does, that changes what we do. That produces what we do. It's when we're living in that God story, His story of what He's done for us, that changes our perspective, changes our values, changes us, our hearts. And that produces the fruit of our lives. If it does not produce good works, then our faith is dead. It only shows we don't really understand what God's done for us. We're not really resting in it, trusting in it. If we say we have faith, but there's no deeds, our faith is dead. But if we do anything that doesn't come from faith, that work is worthless. That work is Worthless. I've offended some of my own staff by taking some of their passions. Passions. Passion about mercy. Passion about missions. Passion about evangelism. And I say, but if it is not a faith, it's circumcision. Do you understand? It's circumcision. If it is not a faith, it is just circumcision. If we do anything, oh, I'm sorry, I said that. And so at the core, Christian living is living in light of what God does for us. At the core, it's living in that story. That story where he is the hero. He is the subject. We're just props. We're just recipients. We live in that story of what he has done for us. And in that story, it changes what we do. Everything else is worthless. I want to move on to the second part of this passage, starting in verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So 
Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Just a few things. I'm going to just do this section a little more quickly because I want to take a different turn. And that is, uh, okay. Verse 5 in your NIV, if you have an NIV, verse 5 is put in the prior paragraph and verse 6 in the following. Other translations put verse 5 and 6 together as in the English Standard Version, which reads, does he supply the spirit to you and work miracles among you? Among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith dash just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, there's something that we might miss in the way the paragraphs are divided. And that is that for Paul, there is a connection. There is a parallel between how the Galatians receive the Holy Spirit by faith. And how Abraham is credited with his righteousness by faith. He's saying, you receive the spirit by faith just as Abraham was credited with righteousness by faith. In other words, the faith that the Galatians exhibited and so received the spirit is the faith of Abraham who was credited as righteous. Or Abraham is, is highlighted as the role model of what living by faith means. Abraham is given as an instructive model for what gospel living looks like. Let me, if you take verses 6 through 9, we can break it up into a statement, conclusion, statement, conclusion. And we don't have time to unpack all the statements and all the conclusions, so I'm just going to get to the conclusions, okay? Just because I'm trying to, I'm trying to condense things. So if you read here, statement, consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Conclusion, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Statement, the scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Conclusion, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, again, there's a lot to unpack, but let me just tell you what I think the conclusion is. Main point. Those who live by faith are the children of Abraham and inherit his blessings. All right, if you look at what Paul's trying to say, his point, all right, his concluding points, his point is, if you live by faith, you too are a descendant of Abraham and an heir of his inheritance. Now, in that, I think he's also saying some other messages, so just, just want to highlight. I think he's saying, Paul is pointing out that this gospel isn't a new thing. The people of God have always received by faith. That's the way it's always been. Back to the days of Abraham. This is not a new gospel that Paul, because these Judaizers who were criticizing Paul were taking issue with Paul's gospel and Paul's backing up and saying, hey, look at the Bible. This is how it's always been. The people of God have always received by faith, the righteous will live by faith. That's how it's always been. The second message Paul gives is the gospel is and has always been for Gentiles. Now, that's an, a major theme here in Galatians that we're not going to explore. But that's the whole context that these Judaizers were basically telling you. Gentile Christians need to become Jews to become followers of Christ. And Paul is saying, no, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to be Jews. They just have to live by faith, not law. That's another story. 
I'd like instead, I think what will be of more practical benefit is for us to look at the faith of Abraham. So I want to take us on a little excursion to consider Abraham's faith because it is pointed to as a model for what gospel living looks like. And I'll give you my conclusion up front. We'll see that Abraham had a promise-believing faith. A promise-believing faith. If you're looking at your Bibles, verse 8, Paul quotes, All nations will be blessed through you. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God calls Abraham and he says, Leave your country, your people, and I will take you to a new land and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and whoever blesses you, I will bless and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then the line and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise God had made to Abraham when God called him in Genesis 12. And then the next verse, Genesis 12, verse four, you read. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. Here's a story. God says, Abraham, leave your land, leave your people, go and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and those who curse you, I will curse and I will bless the world through you. Abraham says, I believe that promise. I believe he will bless me and make me into a great nation and give me many descendants. And so what does he do? He's walking. What is that? I'm going to call that a promise believing faith. It's not that hard. God made a promise. Abraham said, I believe it. And so he starts walking. Galatians 3, 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15. When God calls Abraham, here he is, an old man, no kids, no land. And he says, look up at the stars. You see how many stars? Can you count them? So shall your offspring be. I mean, how would they say, you know, how many stars you could see with the naked eye? I mean, thousands and thousands of stars you could see. God says, so shall your offspring be. And then you get that line. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did he believe? What well, we'll believed that it was credited? He, he believed that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead in three days. Is that what he believed? He believed the doctrines of justification. Is that what he believed? What did he believe? He believed God's going to give me lots of babies. <laughs> That's what he believed. I'm going to have lots of kids, more than I can ever count. He says, come on, Sarah, bring it on. We're going to have lots of babies. That's what he believed. And God said, I consider you righteous. For what? For believing his promise. Second part of Genesis 15, God says, and do you see this land? Abraham's been called out of his homeland. He has no land of his own. He's wandering. He's a, he's a homeless guy. That's basically, he's a homeless guy. And God says, you see all this land? I'm going to give it to you. God promised to Abraham children and land when he had no children and he had no land. But it is the story of how Abraham believed the promises. Right. That's what the whole story is about. I mean, the main story is centered around this promised child. Right. This promised child. 
that God had uh, assured them of. And so at one point, Abraham's 86, uh, his wife says, you know, honey, this really isn't working too well. You know, why don't you sleep with my maidservant, Hagar? And he sleeps with Hagar and she conceives. That's a minor miracle in itself. 87-year-old man impregnates maidservant. 80, you know, I mean, that's... Anyway, sorry. Um, but God made it very clear that Ishmael, through Hagar, is not the promised son he had been speaking of. Abraham's 99 now. Sarah's 89 Angels come to Abram and says, this time next year, you will have a child. Sarah laughs. Angels turn to Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why does your wife laugh? Right? Do you understand? The whole story is centered around the question. Do you believe the promise? That's what the whole story is about. Do you believe that God will give you this child? Genesis 21, lo and behold, the child is born. And we read Paul's understanding of this passage in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. You don't have to be that smart to figure that out. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God here, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised what is the story of abraham it is the story of a man who believed god's promise but there's more the next chapter genesis 22 god then says take that son that promised son the son that you bore when you were a hundred years old take that beloved son that i promised you i want you to go take him on mount moriah and i want you to kill him and you know the story abraham lifts the knife Ah, and then, you know, they, they find a little ram in the thicket and they kill the ram. Why did Abraham do that? Hebrews writes this. Where'd it go? By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's through Isaac, not Ishmael, not some other kid. It's Isaac. Kill Isaac. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he received Isaac back from death. Why did Abraham, why was Abraham willing to put his knife to his son Isaac? Do you know why? Because Abraham reasoned. He said, God promised that it is through this son that I will have many descendants. And now he is telling me to kill this son. And so it must be that if even if I kill him, God will raise him because God will keep his promise. Do you see that? That was Abraham's faith. God will keep his promise. 
even if I kill the son through whom that promise shall come. He will keep his promise. Abraham had a promise-believing faith. Practical application that I'm going to spend this part and then tomorrow morning on is I think the, the simplest application, the most concrete thing I can offer to you to start you on this journey of living in the gospel is to meditate on, to claim, to live in the reality of God's promises. It is not about you need to pray harder, help the poor, preach the gospel, go on missions, do all of these things. That's great. But at the core, it's not about your good works. It's about your faith. And if it does, your good works do not come from faith. Your good works are worthless. For me, it has been this discipline of meditating on God's promises that God has used to open my eyes to who he is and what he's done. It has redefined, reignited my relationship with God in a way that I had not seen before. I offer this to you as the one main application I'd like to give you for this whole retreat is to learn to meditate on, pray through, live in God's promises. Because in the end, it's not about what you do. Do this gospel is not about your doing. This gospel is about your believing the righteous will live by good works. No, the righteous will live by faith. What faith are you living by? That you are called righteous. It's not just a story of Abraham. I'd like to just as I was preparing these sermons, I was reading the Christmas account. And it's just so obvious, back to back in the Gospel of Luke. Angel appears to Zechariah. You will have a son in your old age. But Zechariah doubted. Zechariah doubted. And the angel said, well, you don't believe you're going to have a son? Kabam. But you can't talk, right? He's mute. A few verses later, angel appears to Mary. Mary, you're a virgin, but you will have a child. And Mary says, may it be as you have promised. These two accounts are put side by side to contrast, I think, the main contrast that God sees. Where are the people who doubt and where are the people who believe? That is the battle. The battle of the Christian life is not about trying to keep the law. The battle of the Christian life is to believe in God and the promises and the promise, sir. Galatians contrasts living by the law and living by faith. Under the law, the big crime is breaking the law. But under the paradigm of faith, the big crime is doubting and not believing. What has been your focus? What has been the theme of your Christian life? Let me just highlight a few more pieces. It's faith, not works. I'd like to suggest, as I've mentioned earlier, so much of Scripture is given to strengthen our faith, not to tell us what to do. Yes, it's to tell us what to do, but that's 
Secondary, I would like to suggest that the scriptures are mainly a story and reassurances and promises of his care, of his provision, of his deliverance, of his protection, of his faithfulness, of his might, of his goodness, of his love, of his grace, answered prayer, forgiveness of sin, deliverance, that he will work all things for our good. The scripture's main story is all that God is and all that he will do for us. That's what the scriptures are about. It is not primarily a book of application. How to do this and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. That is a life of works. But this is a life of faith. And yet, when we read our Bibles, how many times do we just see what we do or shouldn't do versus the God who we need to trust? Second thing I want to point out is that it's faith, not Feelings. Feelings. I think our generation has put way too much emphasis on our feelings. Do you feel God's blessings? Do you feel his presence? Do you feel it? And I want to say feelings are great, but you do not build your Christian life on your feelings. Scripture is So much more solid in saying, you don't trust your feelings, you trust your faith. The Psalms are so full of the psalmist feeling discouraged and disheartened and dismayed. My enemies are about to devour me. Why, oh Lord, how long will you, will you, will you not hear me? How long must I cry out to you? He's feeling pretty bad. I mean, the Psalms are very honest about these things. He's feeling really bad. And yet, what does he say? I'm feeling so bad. God, how could you do this to me? God, where are you? No, he says, I'm feeling pretty bad. And then he says, but oh, why so downcast? Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. It's not that your feelings should instruct your faith. It's that your faith should instruct your feelings. And yet too many times it's our feelings that make us doubt, not our faith that corrects our feelings. Some of you may know my wife, Jeanette, she graduated from U of I. I'm finding out in these parts, you know, I can go around and say, um, I'm Jeanette's husband. You know, she wrote some songs. I don't know, maybe, you know, I'm her husband. You know? <laughs> anyway, um, I love my wife. My life, wife loves me. But if you ask me at any given moment, so Paul. Are you feeling it? Are you feeling it? Ooh, you know, like, do you miss her? Do you just want to hold her? Yeah, like, quite honestly, right now I'm just thinking about my sermon. You know, <laughs> I'm not feeling the romance right now. I'm, 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 I'm over here, okay? But that does not trouble me. That doesn't trouble me. It's not my feelings. It's that I know I believe that she loves me and that I love her, whether I'm feeling it or not. You base your Christian life on your faith, not your feeling. I'd like to end with um, an illustration from John Piper and just a quick commercial side note. These two books have been very helpful for me. Uh, faith in Future Grace is his treatment of gospel living by faith. Um, 
Piper's not light reading, but if you can get through it, it will be worth your work. God and the Gospel is another book that he's written that um, doesn't directly address the issue of living by faith in the Gospel, but it's, it's, it's just soaked in that paradigm. He just writes out of that posture, out of that frame of this Gospel living by faith. And so I recommend those to you. John Piper, in an old sermon, as he was preaching through Galatians, shared about an experience he had. He said, when I was preparing last week for this local radio show, the major battle that I was fighting was not the struggle to use as much of my effort as possible to study up on what he might ask me. Major battle was the fight of faith. That is your major battle, whether you recognize it or not. Our major battle is the battle of whether we're believing or not. Do I really believe that when Jesus died, all my curse was lifted so that I could say with scripture, what can man do to me? He's saying this radio interviewer, I mean, what's he going to do? Just humiliate me in front of millions of listeners. So what? (laughs) That's nothing. Christ died for my sins and removed my curse. He can't do anything to me. Did I really believe that the death of Jesus is the pledge of God to withhold no good thing from those who trust him? God, you promise that you will withhold no good thing from those who trust you. Lord, I'm trusting in you and I believe you will give me good things. Or am I just really afraid of failure? Did I really believe that the death of... uh, No, I did that. Did I really believe that all things would work together for my good? No matter what happens at this radio interview, whether it goes great or whether it goes terrible, God is in control and it's all for my good. Hallelujah. There's no way this could be for my bad. Did I really... Do I believe that? Or am I afraid? Did I really trust the counsel of Christ? When he said, don't do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Do I really believe he will give me what to say when I need to say it? this? Oops, wait, did I? Uh, sorry, guys. This is the struggle of everyday Christian life, and it is your most important work every day. How to keep your day's activities from becoming works of law and how to live by faith in the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you to redeem you from the curse of legalism. That is our battle. That is the center point of your Christian life. It is a life of faith, not the life of work. So let me say again, the Bible is a story about what God has done for us. He's the hero. He's the main character. And we need to live in that story, not the story of good people trying to do good things, but a great God who does great things for us. Christian living is not about living to get, but living because it's already given. We'll talk more about that later. Christian living is not about living by effort, living by works, living by the law, but living by faith. I'd like you to bow 
as we close tonight, I want to give you a few moments to reflect. Paul is so passionate in Galatians about trying to wake up these Galatians who have started in the gospel, but now they're living by effort. They're not living by grace. They're not living in the gospel story. They're not living by faith. And Harvest is my first time to uh, worship with you and fellowship with you. But my guess is that you're a lot like me. You're a lot like the people in my own church. It's so easy to get this wrong. Because our instinct is to think it's about what I do. Not about what he does. The instinct is to think I should try harder. Not to think I am hopeless and helpless. And I've got to trust him. So maybe this epistle is for you. It's for us. Saying it's a big deal, guys. It's a big, big deal. If you would, I'd like you to take a few moments to humbly acknowledge how helpless we really are. That all our good works are monopoly money. We can't swim. We couldn't swim then. We can't swim now. Do you really believe that? Or do you think you can do something? You're a good person. Just try a little harder and you can do something good. And secondly, I'd like you to reflect on what is it that you need to be trusting God right now? We'll spend a lot more time on trying to unpack that in these next messages. Let's start with, Lord, what promises do I need to be trusting you? Where, where is there worry or anger or fear, anxiety, bitterness? Lord, ask you, where, where is it that I'm not seeing you? say a prayer and then I pass off the mic to these guys. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I know that ultimately it is the work of your Spirit that opens our eyes to see your goodness and glory. Even that faith is your grace to us see, to taste, to believe, to rest, to sense and savor how good and faithful and true and loving you are. Lord, I pray for harvest that we would at least recognize the road we've been called to walk, recognize what the Christian journey is supposed to be about, where gospel living is supposed to take us. And this weekend, Lord, we ask you to take us there. Humbly, Lord, humble us. Show us how hopeless and helpless 
we are. We are holding on to our monopoly money, thinking we've got something and pray that we can let it go. Let it go. That we can turn to you and put our hope in you. In that great gospel story, how you rescue unworthy, weak, and helpless sinners like ourselves. We call on you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.